We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I have a very simple question. Which is the more effective strategy in engaging in the culture wars? A conversation or confrontation? Which method should you use to try to move your community in the right direction? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Today's topic is um, one that is for internal purposes. And what do I mean by that? This is a message addressed to conservatives. I assume that most of you listening to the show probably identify with that because, as we've discussed over and over again, a true conservative is somebody who wants to conserve the time-tested truths. A true conservative is a conservationist, somebody who understands that there are things worthy of conserving. Like I've said before, sure, we believe in conserving clean air and clean water. But we also, as conservatives, classical conservatives, conservatives of the ages, believe in the wisdom that has been passed on to us from those that have lived before us. We are not chronological snobs. We don't believe that our new ideas that are five minutes old trump the old ideas that have been around thousands of years, literally thousands of years, and have been tested time and time again and proven to be true. So as conservatives... As an internal community today, if you will, as a group of people who identify as classical conservatives, I want to have a talk with you. I want to challenge you. I want to ask you a specific question, and it is this. As you engage in culture, as you go about your business in your local community, which is the more effective strategy for moving your town, your village, your city, your county, your state, your country in the right direction. Which is the more effective strategy? Which will bear better fruit? A conversation with your adversaries, those on the left, or confrontation? Which works and which should you be using? More so than the other. As you go to battle in the culture wars, should you seek to have a conversation with the progressives, the radical left, the LGBTQIA cabal, BLM, SEL, intersectionality, multiculturalists, those that believe in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Should we be having a conversation or should we be confronting? That's today's question. Very simple. So let's take a break. And when I get back, I'm going to remind you of my interaction as a college president with the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities and with the sponsoring denomination of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, the Wesleyan Church. I'm going to remind you of the stories, tell them again, with regard to my leadership within that particular subculture, 
Christian colleges and universities and a holiness denomination called the Wesleyan Church. I'm going to refresh your memory on how I engaged with these two entities, the CCCU as well as the Wesleyan Church, when it came to gay marriage, the Obergefell decision, and the call for a conversation within our subgroups, the CCCU and the Wesleyan Church, as to how we were supposed to be responding to this. And then I'm going to tie those stories into the current debate over drag queen performances in small towns, Heartland America. I'm going to tie the CCCU, the Wesleyan Church discussion that I've had, and the involvement I've had in those two arenas, with the current debate over whether or not we should be having a conversation about drag queen parties in our local public parks, or whether we should be confronting it without compromise. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Welcome back to The Rebellion. Okay, so as a means of setting the context for this question, conversation or confrontation, what's the most effective strategy for engaging in culture right now? On big issues, big issues like whether or not you should be having drag queen parties and performances in public parks, hosted by and sponsored by local businesses and other key leaders. In Bartlesville, Oklahoma, it's been sponsored and hosted and financially supported by Phillips 66, ConocoPhillips, Truity Credit Union, uh, Safari Smiles Dentist, um, Dental um, Office, and um, a local State Farm Insurance agency. Those are just some of the folks locally that are supporting an annual party in the park, a public park in downtown Bartlesville, where this last September, September 10th, they actually had a quote-unquote family-friendly drag queen performance where multiple drag queen um, actors, performers, came into town and mimicked uh, striptease performances in front of children in the public park while essentially they were teaching children young boys and girls very young by appearances some of them were five six seven eight years of age they were teaching these children 
how to quote unquote enjoy and affirm these performances as well as give dollar bills to these men that were dressed in drag and uh, doing a mock tease, strip tease, if you will, in front of the kids. So how should we respond? Well, let's go back, set context. When I was the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and the Obergefell decision took place, the Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision that uh, quote-unquote legalized gay marriage, acknowledged, codified into law, gay marriage across the land. Literally, within hours after the decision, I received a letter from the president of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Her name's Shirley Hoekstra. She has her office in Washington, D.C. And as the president of the CCCU, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, she represents some 120-plus evangelical Christian institutions across the nation. You know, schools like Taylor University, Wheaton College, all of the Nazarene schools like Southern Naz University, uh, Point Loma University, um, Eastern Nazarene University, the Free Methodist schools like Spring Arbor College, Greenville College, Seattle Pacific University, non-denominational schools like I said, Taylor, Wheaton, John Brown University, many of the Baptist schools like Oklahoma Baptist University and Oklahoma Wesleyan University. We were a member of the CCCU at the time. We were part of that 120-plus coalition, council of Christian colleges and universities that, universities that were, uh, by definition, at least by mission statement, essentially of the same cloth. Oh, we had different denominational distinctions, but we all were evangelical Christian institutions that believed in what was had come to be known as Christ-centered education. Liberal arts institutions that were focused on and grounded in Scripture, the teaching of the revealed truths of God as the context for a liberated and free society. A good mission statement, one that I was part of my entire, my entire uh, professional career. But after the Obergefell decision, excuse me, after the Obergefell decision, Shirley Hoekstra sent us a note within hours. If I recall correctly, it was a day or two after the decision, I received this letter uh, from Shirley Hoekstra where she was calling upon all of the CCCU member presidents, in other words, 120-plus college and university presidents across the nation, to get together and have a conversation about what to do about Obergefell. The question was this, should we hire married homosexual faculty? And I responded, as you've heard me tell before, I responded by calling Dr. Hoekstra in Washington, D.C., and I said, Surely, Dr. Hoekstra, what are we going to have a conversation about? Where in the Bible does it tell us to have a conversation about sin? Don't we all agree that the Bible is clear on this issue? That there's a man and a woman, both are defined objectively, scientifically, biblically, and that the only acceptable relationship, contractual or otherwise, for sexual activity, marital activity, sexual intercourse, is within the confines of biblically defined marriage. Don't we agree on that basic pr principle? Well, of course we do, but we need to have a conversation. Well, a conversation about what? I thought the Bible told us to confront and confess sin, not sit around and talk about it. 
And I told her, as you know, that if we didn't, we, meaning the CCCU, didn't come down on this issue immediately and correctly, I was going to withdraw my institution from the organization. They didn't, so I withdrew. Enough of that story. Well, here's another story. At the same time, as a leader of a Wesleyan college, I found that my position of standing against Obergefell and confronting the LGBTQ tsunami that was washing across our culture, that I was being painted as being too much of a firebrand and too strident on the matter. Too much truth and not enough grace was the language that was used. We needed to have a conversation. Members of the Wesleyan leadership up in Indianapolis, where the headquarters for the Wesleyan Church is, were sympathetic to movements such as Love Wins, which is a Nazarene church, quote-unquote ministry, that celebrates gay Christianity, trans Christianity. Oh, they say that they stand for celibacy, but they celebrate your inclinations to engage in homosexual activity or bisexual activity or transsexual activity. They celebrate those inclinations as gifts from God. Literally, they do this. This is your identity. This is how God made you. They don't preach confession of those inclinations, those passions, or those proclivities. They actually preach that those things define you as God-given characteristics. And the Wesleyan Church was very sympathetic to that. In fact, the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church sent out a letter to the pastors of the Wesleyan Church, essentially uh, passively, aggressively, confronting my position of, no, this is wrong. We shouldn't be having a conversation about this stuff. We should be confronting it. We should be challenging it. We should be calling for con- excuse me, for confession, not capitulation. All right, so we had that Love Wins movement, and then there's the Revoice movement that came on the scenes immediately, oh, a handful of years ago, where, again, the same agenda. Revoice believes in gay Christianity, trans Christianity. Some are saying that they believe in controlling your behavior, but your being, again, your libido, is what you should be celebrating rather than confessing before your Lord. So you're defined by your libido, not by your Lord. All right, so that's the context of my experience in this arena. So now fast forward to this year. You've got the drag queen performances. And I know that some of you conservatives are trying to figure out what to do about it. And I want to be I want to be kind and I want to be gentle with you right now because I realize that some of you listening are on the same team. You believe that this stuff is wrong. And some of you have actually spoken out in culture and said that you don't agree with this. You've, you've initiated uh, local petitions or something like that to try to stem the tide. So I want to be very clear right now. I'm incredibly grateful for those of you who've had the courage to do that. And this is not a condemnation of you. This is an attempt for me to challenge you and, and, and support you and encourage you to carry on rather than to take a step backward. I, I would consider those of you that have actually addressed this issue locally and vocally are a godsend. Praise the Lord. Uh, and I'm not saying anything in my following comments right now in the next few minutes to suggest otherwise. I'm not against you. I'm for you. But I, I, I want to, hopefully, I've got enough... Uh, street cred right now on this issue that you'll 
you'll hear me out. In spite of the fact that I've got your back, I want to go on the record as saying that I disagree with you if you're leaning into this conversation mentality. For example, I've had some people say that, you know, you need to stop calling these people child groomers. You don't know what their intent is. And, you know, painting them as child groomers is not consistent with loving them. Well, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. And let me tell you why. Again, I could go on and on about the battles that I fought with the Wesleyan Church for 20 years. And, and with those arguing that we need more love and less confrontation. And how that strategy that the Wesleyan Church and the CCCU employed, more love, less confrontation, less truth, more grace, whatever you, know, you want to call it, that that strategy has led to major denominational compromise. Not only did that approach from holiness church leaders give sanction to sin, but it ultimately led to lost souls, and that surely isn't biblical love, is it? So we need to define our terms. What's love? When, when God disciplines us, does he love us? And if he doesn't discipline us, is that evidence of love or is that evidence otherwise? You know, the Lord disciplines those he loves. We're told that. So love and discipline go hand in hand. Confrontation is not antithetical to love, and love is not antithetical to confrontation. In fact, if your kid is doing something dangerous that could hurt him, the loving thing to do is to step in his way and to tell him firmly, firmly, to stop. Confrontation is the loving thing at that point in time when somebody is endangering their mind, body, or soul. So I want to say this again. This ongoing call for more love and less confrontation leads to a great deal of denominational compromise. It gives sanction to sin, and it ultimately leads to lost souls, and that isn't love. And that's my personal experience in working with the CCCU and the Wesleyan Church. I warned over and over again that the Wesleyan capitulation to fairness for all, for example, would result in nothing other than the loss of our religious freedom. And I was ignored. And look where we are right now. Joe Biden just signed the Disrespect for Marriage Act. We, we're losing our religious freedom. I warned of it for 20 years. And the leadership of a holiness denomination and the leadership of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities ignored me. They fought against me. I tried to get the Alliance Defending Freedom on the agenda, on the docket, so that they could give a contrary view to the fairness for all proponents. And they wouldn't even permit the most successful, the most successful law firm in the nation in terms of defending cases before, before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I ask over and over again in meetings with within the Wesleyan Church and the CCCU, where in the Bible does it tell us to have a conversation about sin rather than confront it and confess it? And I received little but a shrug. Uh, you're being too strident. You're too much of a firebrand. It's too confrontational. So when I ask, where in the Bible does it say? Where is the example in the Bible about leaning into a conversation rather than confronting and confessing? I got a shrug. No answers, but obviously disagreement in a passive-aggressive way. And now, just a handful of years later, after these battles that I fought in the Wesleyan Church and the CCCU within the Christian college community, the holiness community, the evangelical community, 
handful of years later, we actually have holiness denominations and the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, defending conversations about gay Christianity and drag trans identity within the body of Christ. As I've said, I've already given you the example. Revoice and Love Love Wins, those are two movements that are gaining momentum in evangelical quarters right now. The evangelical community no longer seems to care about the evangel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you can be born again. You don't have to accept the fact that you were born that way, that you can become a new creation in Christ because the old is gone, behold, the new has come. That no longer seems to be the guiding ethos or emphasis, the guiding premise of the evangelical movement. It it seems to be that we're going to celebrate our proclivities, our libido, rather than die to self and give ourselves over to a Lord bigger and better and more permanent and enduring and right and real than the Lord you see in your own reflection. We've become nothing but a bunch of narcissists. It's now the narcissistic, the Gnostic Church of America as opposed to the evangelical church. So this battle that we're engaged in right now it is a battle for our children. It's a battle for our community. It's a battle for our church. And it's absolutely child grooming. This challenge that, well, using the word grooming is it's inappropriate because we don't know that that's what they intend to do. It is grooming. I don't care what their intent is. Their actions speak louder than their words. Their behavior is grooming. And calling it anything but that will result in what? Lost innocence of our children, the broken bodies of our children, and the debauched minds of our children. They're grooming your children. A bunch of adults mimicking a strip tease, teasing your children, your five-year-olds and eight-year-olds in a public park to give a bunch of men dollar bills as a reward for a sexual performance, is grooming your children. You can call it what you want. You can try to be more open to those that are promoting these things. But that openness is not going to change reality. This is grooming, pure and simple. End of it. By definition, that's what it is. And here's my point. Conversations win no wars. We're in a culture war. And a conversation is not going to make you victorious in that war. This is a war. It's a battle for your kids, their hearts, their minds, and their souls. And conversations win no wars. Conversations bring no repentance. Conversations result in compromise and nothing else. And is that where you want to go? Compromise? Compromise with those that want to groom your children in a public park with adult men, teasing, by definition, teasing your kids to be interested in this sexual behavior and reward these men with dollar bills? You want to have a conversation about that? I don't think so. It will lead to compromise and capitulation. It'll lead to appeasement. And Chamberlain appeased Hitler, and it didn't end well. Elijah did not engage in conversations with the priests of Baal. 
John the Baptist did not have a conversation with Herod. God didn't send his messengers to have a conversation with Sodom. Jeremiah, Micah, the, the prophets of old, Isaiah, these people didn't have conversations with their culture. They confronted them. They challenged them with their, the reality of their sin and with the solution, which was repentance confession before the ultimate truth. Jonah did not have a conversation with Nineveh. Does this make sense? So here's where I'm going with this. We're either going to fight or we're going to lose. And and a loss will not be primarily ours. It'll be our children's and our communities. I respect all of you who are trying to fight this battle openly and boldly. And I'm not trying to make you feel uh, like I'm on an opposite side from you when I say stop the conversations and be bold and courageous. Continue the confrontation. Don't back off. Now is not the time to find the middle way. Thank you for young people that are stepping into the market square of ideas and leading with courage and conviction and clarity. Thank you. Praise the Lord for you. You're a godsend, but don't back away because you're, you're feeling uncomfortable. I actually believe it's time to start suing. Uh, you need to recognize that ConocoPhillips doesn't want to get the negative PR of being groomers. They don't want that. Phillips 66 doesn't want that. Your local banks, State Farm Insurance, your dentist doesn't want to be in the media every day because they're being accused of grooming children for sexual activity. They don't want that. So why would you step away from the opportunity to make them feel the discomfort of their own broken agenda? Some of the people at Phillips 66, ConocoPhillips, Trudy Credit Union, State Farm Insurance, the local dentist office, and some of the people in your church, they just need to be, they just need to suffer the, the light uh, 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 that exposes the darkness of this broken agenda in this broken worldview. And they'll wake up. They'll, they'll wake up quickly. The Chamber of Commerce doesn't want to be known as an organization that promotes child grooming. Parents don't want to be called into question for child neglect. I believe it's time for us to find good attorneys that are courageous and actually start suing your city council. Start suing the local community for not enforcing the laws that are on the books. Start suing them for their negligence in putting your children at risk in these local public areas. Will you win in the court of law? You know, frankly, probably not. But who cares? A win in the court of public opinion is just as valuable as a legal victory. And I'm telling you right now that there's still an opportunity to win in the court of public opinion. Uh, Gloria Allred, I despise her. I, I think she's terrible. But there's something you can learn from watching the way she chases the ambulance, if you will, of every time there's a Me Too claim against a, a conservative judge or something out there. She is in the limelight every time. Why? Because she is trying to win in the court of public opinion. 
She knew that the claims against uh, Kavanaugh, for example, had no legal chance of winning. She knew that there was going to be no win in the courts. But she also recognized that that was, to some extent, irrelevant because a victory in the court of public opinion was just as valuable, if not more so, than a legal victory in our local courts. There's wisdom there. There's a shrewdness there. Be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. Yes, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those are the fruits of the Spirit. But nothing in those admonitions precludes you from confronting sin when it's there. Otherwise, you'd have to set aside the teaching of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and even Jesus. I want to ask you this question in closing. Did Jesus have a conversation with the money changers in the temple? Or did he confront them? Did Jesus have a conversation with the Pharisees when he called them whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones? Even Jesus, the actual incarnation of God's love, confronted and did not have a conversation about blatant, egregious sin, especially when it came to grooming children. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.